Welcome to the show. You are now part of Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people success, deal success, and strategy success. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals, and they share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Gina, tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day. I'm curious, how are you celebrating? I don't really have a big celebration. I think I, when I was like 23 or 24, I probably stopped celebrating St. <laughs> Patty's Day. <laughs> uh, I have always wanted to go to Chicago for the St. Patty's Day celebration. Yes. They are just to see the river. but The day at Green. Yeah, yeah. so I haven't, uh, haven't done that yet, but one day. What about you? Uh, despite having a red beard and often being asked if I am Irish, which I don't know if that's true or not. I have not done the 23 and me. <laughs> you should. I know. Just to just to get that solved, honestly, is the only reason I would do it. Um, I'm doing nothing. I would also say the last time I celebrated it was sometime in college because any reason to drink. Um, but now I just do my best to wear green if I can remember, which I don't do a great job of. <laughs> uh, so this week we talked to Jake Dunlap, who's the CEO of Scaled, Scaled with a K. Uh, if you don't know who Jake is, he is... Um, I would say a thought leader on LinkedIn. He's got a great following. He, he does leave a lot of really good hot takes and sales tips. Some call him controversial. I think he's just outspoken, and I mean that in a great way. Um, and me and Jake actually go back a couple of years. I used to uh, do a little bit of work for Scaled. And so it was great to catch up with them this week. And we, dive, we dove into the buyer's journey a bunch. Mm-hmm. What, was, what were some of the things that you got out of this? You know, what were your kind of like aha moments? I think one was just the foc- the lack of focus on existing customers and how that is a really overlooked uh, overlooked aspect of sales and a huge right. opportunity. And people are always thinking about like, hey, how can I get the next customer in the door? But you can't forget about who's already there and providing that amazing experience. And then it, that ties into a lot of like the long-term thinking um, that he presents in the initial part of the conversation as well. For sure. For those who are looking for takeaways, tips, and advice, this one is packed full of it. Uh, Jake does a great job going high level, but then really getting tactical. So uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the interview with Jake. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It's been a long time. I know me and you go back a couple years. That's right, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we always like to start it off with an icebreaker. Um, I'm curious, do you have a morning routine that you stick to? Well, I hear, here's what I'm, I'll tell you my 2020 is I want to start to stick to it when I travel. I kind yeah. of mm-hmm. not, I'm not very good when I travel. Um, but typically, yes. So I usually get up between 4:45 and like 5:10 every morning. Um, and I'm trying some tweaks to it. I used to, but I typically will do then is I'll go to the gym, um, or I'll do work out my house or I'll go to soul cycle. Um, and then I've got a whole routine that I just, I started this in this year. It's called yesterday's to do's. And so what I started to do to make sure that I don't ever remember, forget everything, anything is what I do is every night before I leave or, you know, most nights I then catalog all the meeting takeaways I had and I drop them in, you know, like tomorrow, next week, like whatever these things need to get done. 
And so then right after I do my workout, I then pop in um, to my yesterday's to-dos of whatever I've assigned myself over the course, whatever. I do those things. Then I do email. And then usually I start the day. Oh, a post on LinkedIn, obviously. Right? That's like, <laughs> that's <laughs> like just, gotta be a slot it really is. I mean, 7.30. I mean, if you look at during the week, I'm between, you know, 7.30 to 8 central time, almost like clockwork. So that's like a part of the routine too. I have noticed because I do follow you and you strike me as someone who definitely has a morning routine. And I was not surprised at the early start, like at all. It's new for me. Honestly, this is new. I, I didn't, I didn't used to be a five. I read a book, actually a guy sent me a book called, I think it's called the 5am club and it's kind of a fictional. It, yeah. It's like a fictional, uh, like, like a fictional nonfiction book. Like there's a book called the goal, which if you've ever had an MBA, it's a logistics book. That's like written. It's like how to explain logistics with this fictional story. And, and the 5am club is kind of like that, like about how, you know, you have to have these like morning routines and I've had different fits and starts with it. And I, like I said, I still struggle with it when I travel, but it's been, it, it's been strikingly not at, like in like not that as difficult as I thought to maintain, especially with a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Yeah. That's that, impressive. That, the, the challenge machine and I were on the road for the last two weeks for our, our gong road show. And right up to that, I was so proud of the morning routine that I had <laughs> and it yeah. has thoroughly deteriorated just from going <laughs> hotel to hotel. Uh, the, the time, the time jump from, you know, three hours ahead can really kill you in the morning. So I'm looking forward yeah. to, uh, maybe she, you and Sheena have a glass, like we had to maybe again, you're out, you have a glass of wine, you know, you're just like, just hanging out, you're having dinner, <laughs> you're on the, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're on the road. Like, dude, I know how it goes, man. It's like you, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it can be difficult, but I've got some travel coming up here in the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to try to, to break that, that habit. That's my goal. Solid. Good luck. So for those Thank who are, um, who are less familiar with scaled, maybe you could give us a, a little overview of what you're up to over there. Yeah, sure. So I'll give like a quick Jake history. I, I think you've got some questions that we can go through later. So I started scaled. I'd been the VP of sales at a few different startups, Glassdoor, then a startup in New York called Chartbeat. What I saw happening in the market is that as companies were growing and scaling, and then later on I learned that this is the same for really, really, really big companies too, is that as you go through different phases, different things break. And usually those are related to people, mm -hmm. which is your hiring profiles, training and onboarding, um, all the different, uh, you know, role profiles, compensation, all those different things. Um, you know, that, that's a start is the people part. Then there's the process, which is your demand generation process changes dramatically, you know, as you want to, institutionalize different things, overhaul what you're doing, see different results. Same thing with your sales process, right? And you're trying to build out more repeatable, scalable sales processes and methodologies. Um, and then the final piece was technology. So if you look at people, process, and technology, I saw that. And then, say, you know, when I started the company, this is in 2013, sales technology was a blip right? It was like a very small thing, but I quickly by about 2015 saw the sales engagement space. Like, I'm like, that is a thing that is going to be massive. And it was, it was clear to me, like almost instantaneous. And so we have a practice at scale too, that's dedicated hundred percent to kind of sales operations as a service where we partner with sales ops teams to do that. So mm. at scaled really, you know, we partner with internal teams to optimize core components of their sales and kind of this bleed between marketing and sales around LinkedIn. Um, internal processes. And so we're partnering with sales leadership, marketing leadership, you know, sales operations, sales enablement, and to helping to tackle specific challenges. And that's, that's what we're up to. That's great. And I'm sure you're not short on business or at least prospects you could help. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's yeah, business is good. There's the money's flowing, but when the money doesn't flow, I, I think I'm even like 
more excited that, you know, more and more people are going to need that support, right? When it's markets frothy, everyone's spending money. Yeah. It's like, ah, sales are great. Everything's good. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but it's when the market tightens, I actually think we're, we're going to be an even better position. That's great. Well, let's talk about your career for a little bit because you got started as an account manager in the professional sports industry. Mm -hmm. So I'm always curious what motivated you motivated you to get into sales and why pro sports? So I graduated college with a degree in entertainment management with an emphasis in sports, which did not, you know, as much as I would hope prepare me. I, I remember the very first interview I had, I had to fly to Tampa. It was during finals week and I had to fly in and the VP of sales was interviewing me and he's like, what do you want to do? And I go, I want to be a general manager. Mm-hmm. He's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like at the time I was like, I was interviewing for a group sales like role, right? Like right. he's yeah. like, dude, one being a general manager has nothing to do with sales. So good. thanks kid. Yeah. So, um, I didn't know what happened is this. So look, I did telemarketing in college. So I had a bunch of like two or three different telemarketing jobs. I waited tables for two and a half years. I worked almost full time in college and I was, na- I had a lot of natural ability. I had no, I have no problem in self-deprecating. I have no problem getting out of my own comfort zone. And so when I, I had already done these sales jobs. So when I got into sports and I was up against a bunch of other people, I destroyed everybody. Like I was so, I was so much, I got moved from in a year and a half from group sales to season ticket to one of two senior account executives in the whole ticket sales group to then managing the inside sales team in, in a year and a half. Nice. Wow. And I had a lot of natural ability, but a lot of it was, I, I didn't, I was okay getting out of my own comfort zone. And then I, I took a job with the coyotes in Phoenix. Um, I told my boss to F off at one point. He didn't like that. He fired me. That's wow. when I learned a very variable, <laughs> very valuable. Well, it was kind of BS, right? Like your sales leader goes out and you know, drinks with you and does all this stuff. And like, you're 25 for, I don't know what the line is at this point. And so I thought, I still think it was a little bit of BS, but, but anyway, that's when I learned a very valuable lesson in sales is like, just because you're the top, like being a top performer is not enough. Like yeah. everyone is just like, you're like, doesn't matter how good you are. Like, you know, you can't put up with people who are a pain in the butt and you can't you know, be a pain in the butt if you're, you know, a top seller either. So there was that. And then I went into tech. So then that's whenever I got an opportunity to go uh, to career builder. And that's where, you know, I, I really credit CareerBuilder as helping me to grow up. They taught me a sales process. You know, I've told this story a bunch, but you know, I had a, a boss. I was the second to last person in my, my training group to make a sale. I had, hadn't sold anything. I'm like, dude, what is going on? And my director at the time is like, Jake, I listened to your call. Like, why aren't you like saying the script? Like, why aren't you running the process? I'm like, oh, the script. I'm like, Evan, I am a, I am an artist. What, what is this <laughs> script, this process that you speak you of? The color within the lines here? Yeah. What? I mean, come on. I'm wild card here. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> so, but anyway, but he, you know, he said something to me and I'll, I'll never forget it. And I've passed this story along hundreds of times, but he said, you know, Jake, do you think we're stupid? He goes, do you think we train thousands of salespeople on a process that doesn't work? And I was like, uh, well, probably not. Right. <laughs> and so, and so I did it and I closed 60,000 in new business the next month. And that was when I was like, Oh my God, sales is a process. Yeah. yeah. Like, Holy crap. I had all this natural, I was like naturally good, but then I was, that's when I learned that. So I had a bunch of different roles at Glassdoor. They paid for my MBA. I took advantage of that. Nice. Um, and so that's when, you know, Glassdoor came knocking. Like I had a sales process. I was a proven track record as a leader had a proven track record as an enterprise seller. Um, and, you know, was the first VP of sales there scaled from zero to a million MRR and really just over a year, zero to 40 people in just over a year. And that was kind of my first crack at like rapid, rapid growth startup world. Mm-hmm. So then the rest is the rest. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you can hear from your voice. You're, you're very passionate about sales. I, I'm curious, like, what about like it specifically it. has kept you in sales? And, like, what about it do you just love? Well, I've always, so I'm also an, like a very avid reader. So I love the psychology. I love the, I love that it is like that, that people behave so like that there are so much predictable things to it and there's so much pattern recognition to it, but yet there's the, the nuances are different between each one and the kind of like constantly figuring out those nuances just is, is really exciting for me. And I think the other thing that, that's really exciting for me now is just how much I, I you know, I really believe sales is going to change dramatically in the next five to 10 years that technology, whether we want to believe it or not, technology is going to augment roles, you know, and they're saying replace people are like, it's not going to do It's going to replace roles. Let's just call it, it is. <laughs> and I think also buyer behavior is changing dramatically. So I think, they, um, it's kind of like an awesome time to be in sales. Like I really earned my chops. Like I was selling, I was at Caribler from 2006 to 2010. And then I went to Glassdoor from 2010 to 2012. I was selling job ads in a crap. Like I didn't, I've never known a like good. I've only known how to sell. Yeah. Right? I worked for the Tampa Bay Rays in 2003 through five. They're the worst <laughs> team in baseball. I worked for the Coyotes. Yeah. Like I, I had to learn how to sell. And so I've always loved you know, the, the science behind it, the working with people help. Like I genuinely believe that I'm helping every single person I sell to. And that if I can't help you, then there's no sale to be had. And so it doesn't mean I'm not going to sell you down the road, but like right now, like you haven't realized it yet that you need to buy this um, or you're not a fit. So I think that it's that combination of those things that, that I really enjoy. I enjoy the process. I enjoy the science. I enjoy the psychology, the sociology behind it. And now I'm just really pumped for this next iteration. Cause I think it is going to be a really interesting time where buyers have access to more information than ever before. And we've been saying that for a while, but man, it's really coming to B2B. You look at yeah. what's going on with it, with the guys over at G2 and what I've seen their growth. It's stupid. And you know, there, and you know, whatever the other side, you know, there's others kept terror. There, there's a bunch of these, but you know, more and more buyers are, are have information. And I think it just, it's going to enter into a new world of what it means to be in sales when, when sales isn't all about education. It's also about, um, you know, shepherding the process. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to break out the data on how improving your buyer's journey can provide tangible results. And here's what the numbers say. First, 74% of deals go to the company that provided insights first. This tells me that speed is critical when starting the buyer's journey. That means you need to respond to inbound leads within minutes or hours and not days. If your competitor beats you to the punch, you're starting your sales cycle at a disadvantage. And here's another angle to consider. How are you influencing the buyer's journey when you're not there? Gartner says 27% of buyers spend their time researching online on their own as they evaluate. And 72% of B2B buyers prefer content that is specific to their buying stage. So what's that tell us? We need to shape that experience. And you can do that by providing content that speaks to their specific needs and interests based on where they are in the evaluation process. That means mapping informative content to your sales process and equipping your sales team to use the right content for the right scenario. Remember, most people start their search with Google. When they look you up, what will they find? And will it improve their buying experience? How do you look at your experience being an operator and then now you're more of an advisor and you're going in and helping clients like based on your experiences? I think they're, they're very different skill sets and it's very different experience. Like I myself, like I was in consulting at the beginning of my career. Now I'm more in operations. So I, I kind of went the other way around. Uh, what do you miss about maybe being an operator 
uh, versus going in now as a consultant and vice versa? So I miss nothing. I dead serious. Like I literally miss absolutely nothing. I was, a re- <laughs> I'm a really bad employee, meaning like I'm, a, I'm extremely good at the work, but I'm not, I have, and especially when I was like, you know, 30, 31, 32, I, I, I couldn't play nice, like at the executive level. I just didn't understand that sales is everything. Right. And obviously I've like rounded some of those corners at this point, but, um, I look, here's the thing I haven't ingrained in me is an ownership mentality. And, but that it doesn't matter. I behave the exact same way. I expect like my, my consultants, we have a very specific mantra. Like you act as if, and if our consultants, if I, we ever get feedback that it's like, well, yeah, you know, well, it's been good, but you know, like we'd like them to be like, we, we need them to be more hands-on is like my kryptonite. And so I really feel like we try to, and I'm not, you know, if you look at you know comments on, you know, on G2 or other sites that, our team really gets in the trenches. So for me, I mean, candidly, there's, there's just not a lot of difference except for I can't get fired. Like that's, <laughs> I feel like I act the exact same, you know? And I think if you, you knew me, I think if you ask people who knew me in 2000, you know, six through 10 through 12 through 13, you know, like I think they'd probably say the same thing too. And right. I don't want to put this on you, but I know um, yeah, earlier you said that, you know, you, every time you're selling, you feel like you're helping people. So you have that, it seems like you have that innate desire to help others. And so now going in as an advisor, as a consultant, that's basically what you're doing with every one of your clients. That's right. That's right. And I think here's the thing. I'm also not like the, I'm not like a relationship builder either. Meaning like I like to help people's I like business trends. I like business, right? Like I like to help their business. I don't need another friend in Seattle or, or insert city. Like I am trying to find (laughs) companies where I can help their business. That is what excites me. I am, you know, I've taken strengths finders. I have a, I'm a, there's 34 strengths. I'm a 34 on empathy. Like I'm not trying to, I'm trying to drive business outcomes and I love doing that. And that is what I'm trying to do. If you like, you know, hopefully we become friends after, but step one is like, let's show some mutual value here. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Friendship's just a bonus. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, well, I don't even know if I like you. Like, let me help your business and then let's see if there's something here. And if we do this, then great. Fine. Uh, Going back, you said something earlier that was interesting. Like people have been saying this for a while talking about, you know, uh, buyers have more uh, information available. Um, you are one of the first people I remember, or at least really like harping on in a positive way, like the importance of the buyer's journey. And yeah. I know you've been talking about that for a long time. I think it's starting to gain wind now. A lot of people are saying, you know, we're kind of moving away from the sales process, which is very company oriented, moving towards the buyer journey, which is very buyer centric. I'm curious kind of just for your your take there. And then also, you know, why is it so important for sales leaders to shift their focus that way? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really, really good question, Devin. Um, I think there's, there's a few different factors that go into this. Um, and I'm trying to think like which one is like probably best to dive into first. I'll just start with why I think like now is an important time. And most companies aren't going to change for a while. Like, I mean, I still sure. think we're at the very, very beginning of this. So here's what's happened that it used to be, and this was not that long ago. We're talking 15 years ago, right? 10, 15 years ago, most sales organizations, you had one person, you had one person who prospected you who closed the deal hmm. and then worked with you. Yeah. Right. And like, guess what? That's a really good buyer experience. Yeah. It's really good. It's great. Right. Like, like I wait. So Jake, Jake has to deal with me. So guess what Jake's <laughs> not incentivized to do. He's not incentivized to force MQL me. 
Right. He's not incentivized to jam the deal through at the end of the quarter and say whatever he needs to to get the deal done. Jake's Jake's responsible for me afterwards. Yeah. And so as soon as we started to move to to buy and trifurcated, now like quadfurcated if you include onboarding, you know it's it's just created this disjointed experience. And what that what's also happened is sales and sales leadership has also been fragmented. You know, meaning like I, I see it time and time again where a VP of sales isn't even in charge of customer success anymore. Right. And, um, or, or account management. And yeah. I'm like, well, you're going to constantly have friction or you have to figure out how to align incentives. And so I think some of the, the trends that I think we're going to see and like my most controversial trend is definitely around salespeople comp. And I get a lot of hate mail from like salespeople. But I really feel like to do what's best for the customer. And that's that's all I'm talking about here is part of compensation needs to be tied to some level of usage that, you know, you get part of your compensation up front, you get part of your compensation once they've cleared X onboarding threshold. And what does that, what does that, what does that make you do as a seller? Well, it makes sure that like you stick around long enough to make sure it makes sure that, Hey, you know what? Maybe I don't jam this deal through because I'm going to be dealing with it for six to 12 months because these people are never going to use and I'm only going to get half commission. And so, or whatever it is. So I think we've got to really look at the compensation plans between groups. I think we've got to start to look at, are we incentivizing what's right for the buyer? I think marketing sales development, sales and customer success leader have to sit down. And this is what we're doing with a lot of our clients for the first time is getting these people to the table and saying, look, let's start to look at this from the buyer's perspective. And I get it. Like we don't have to hundred percent optimize for, you know, every little wish and command, but I, I, you know, it's just like the way an SDR hands to an AE could be changed in the language and make that sound better. You know, the way that AE describes customer success. I think there's some actually some pretty small things that we can do that are a little bit more buyer centric. Um, that I think most organizations we were, we've, we've shifted so far toward efficiency and each group having competing KPIs that we've got to kind of swing the pendulum back a little bit. And I think, you know, compensation plans and, and some of those things and SLAs between groups are, are where we need to start. Sure. Sure. No, that, that, that's a good, that's good insight. What, what are some of those tips you think are some like quick wins that folks can do? I mean, not quick win, but you know what I mean? Those, those no, there, yeah, I really think there are. I think a couple of things is how groups set up each other. So imagine an SDR, I've talked about this before. Imagine an SDR says, Hey, Devin, um, Hey, this is a really good conversation. You know what, you know, you know, John on my team is actually really strong in like the sales and customer success technology space. I'm let, I, why don't I team you up with him? He's one of our experts here. So I'm going to set up time for you two to connect next week. Is that good with you, Devin? Mm-hmm. God, that sounds a lot better than like, I'm going to put you in touch with my account executives. Yeah. Right. And then you, <laughs> you, you can imagine you? how, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. As opposed to like, I'm going to put you in touch with an expert who's going to educate you. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then you look at the, the customer success side, like, okay, based on where you're at, I think Laura, Laura's worked with this account in this account. I think she's going to be a great person for us to work, to get you guys up to speed. Again, it's just stupid, stupid, small stuff that we're just not paying attention to, All right. you know, just that can immediately impact the buyer's perception of these handoffs. And so I think that that's one. Two is I think we've got to align marketing and sales comp. That marketing and sales have to be focused on revenue. And not not all of marketing, because marketing also, I think we're going through kind of a brand renaissance where brand, because there's so many products and so much competition where brand I think can actually differentiate, Yeah. right? Like, so I think, you know, you can't do all of marketing tied to revenue, but I think in B2B, you know, tying marketing and being, you know, we've become so obsessed with leads and, you know, I, I, I jokingly, and I've, I've talked to Aaron Ross about this. I blame him for this, but like we, we've just been trained through predictable revenue that you just get more leads and it solves all problems. Well, mm-hmm. 
what what is a lead the definitions change now we call lead a download of an ebook sure. and mm-hmm. you know or they visited a pricing page it's like well no like they're they're just learning yeah so i think i think that 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 to me is a part of the funnel that you know that 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 initial interaction phase i, I think still has a lot of work but, but that, i think that's a pretty quick win devin if you can just be very mindful about your customer's experience and how you tee up the people after you I think you can see some wins. I think you can see people more excited and engaged in the sales process. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And I think there is, like you said, I think efficiency is kind of the source of that problem, right? Is like if you're in a super specialized role and then you're compensated differently across those different teams that are supposed to be working together, working together in kind of like air quotes, that can be the problem. Because yeah. now you're just focused. If your goal as an SDR is just to get Jake Maie to take the call, you're probably going to message it as such versus the reframe that you position, which is really the way that it would, you know, a more positive way that would hit the customer, the buyer's ear. Yeah, exactly. As you think about like this shift to focusing on the buyer's journey um, and, you know, kind of broader trends that you see in sales in general, how are you, how do you recommend like your customers are measuring the effectiveness of this shift and are effectively focusing on the customer? Uh, so how they're measuring the impact. Well, I mean, hopefully what you see is better conversion between stages and people getting up to speed faster, right? I think if, if you wanted to say, you know, what's, what's, what are a couple of metrics that I could look at to know, is the buyer engaged? It's that the sales cycle shorter mm-hmm. and they're getting to usage faster. And what that usually means is that the, there's the right people that are involved that need to be involved both pre-sales and post-sales in the sales process that the next steps and processes have been explained to them in advance and the right people are in the right places at the right time on your side and on their side to effectively get people up to speed. So Mm -hmm. I think if you're looking at those things, you're looking at the sales cycle and how that's behaving, the number of people involved, um, how engaged people are. And you guys, you know, you guys do a really good job with, you know, so much awesome data around that. And then, you know, how well we explain next steps, and how well we talk about next steps and we get the right people involved early to where they can hit the ground running. So I think that that is how I would start to measure some of this to know, you know, are we, you know, cause if you have weird dropout in your funnel on the sales cycle, like a lot of people are dropping out at step three or step four, that there's something with your buyer experience. that's broke, that yeah. there, there's something in there, you know, there's, there's, there's something that's wrong. Your trial process is too long. They're not engaged. Too many people are getting into try. Right. There's some, there's something there. So I think that, uh, you know, that this, the stats I look at for our, for all of our clients are average age and stage and average per- conversion percentage by stage. Mm-hmm. And then we can kind of pinpoint in on like, where's the breakdown at the buyer that way. And, and then you kind of carry that through onboarding to, to power usage. You, know, you think about that's the goal, right? The goal isn't to make a sale; it's to create power users, right? And if and that's right. how every co- you know company really needs to to really be thinking is your goal is to create power users, not not deals. Right. And if you you focus on power usage and you focus on solving business challenges, you're going to win. I imagine that message. You, you tell me, Jake. I imagine that message could be challenging to get across to a sales leader because a power user isn't really the language of like revenue, right? It's kind of like ideally everyone that buys is a power user, but I'll take someone that buys over a power user, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a pro- more of a product 
thing. Well, yeah, and it's like, an, it's kind of like, okay, do you guys, if you had like a gun to my head, you want a power user or do you want revenue? A sales user is probably, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, right. probably big revenue. I don't realize that like actually that if you shoot for that, you're actually shooting like higher because if you shoot for power user and you get okay user, it's better than like disengaged user, right? Like I think, I think it's about adjusting your medium. And, and here's what I think this is, this is in like, let's even take it a step above. Let's go to the CEO level at most companies, you know, and, and boards and VCs, you know, the, the issue too is that look, most valuations in most ways that, you know, we're talking about LTV here, this is about lifetime value. And so if everyone's not thinking that this customer needs to stick around for three to four years, which is our lifetime value, we're going to have a problem in four to five years. Yeah. And so you either fix it now or you fix it later, but you got to fix it because you're not going to be able to IPO. You're not going to be able to get, you know, your series, you know, or the, the valuation you want at series, you know, EFG. And, and so I think you got to have a, the foresight to think that, you know, one solves the other, you know, if you focused on power and, and again, sometimes great power usage means I've got to build a world-class onboarding and CS team, mm-hmm. you know? And so that means as a sales leader, I need to go partner with my counterpart there. If I don't, you know, control that group, you know, I've had different setups where you know, different groups report to different people, but um, that's it. I mean, I like, I don't, I don't know. I just think you're not playing a long game if you're not thinking that way as a sales leader. That's what I was going to say. It sounds like it's really more of a shift in mindset of short-term wins versus long-term gains. Yeah. And it's because the VP, I'm scared, you know, again, I could go on and on about like what it's like to be a VP of sales startup. Like it's tough sometimes, you right. know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's tough, but you know, for, you know, there's a saying like, take care of the quarter, you know, you, then you take care of, you know, basically if you focus on taking care of the quarter, you know, you need to take care of the month, take care of the month, you take care of the week, take care of the week, you take care of the day. And, you know, I think as a VP, you got to extend that, you know, if I want to make sure that I hit my numbers in 24 months from now, I need to take care of H1. And, and if I need to take care of H1, I need to take care of the, you know, like you just have to expand your time horizons and just say, Hey, what are the small things I'm doing today to make sure I'm successful 24 months from now? And, you know, our customers are successful then too. Yeah, absolutely. I knew you shared earlier, you know, look at your funnel, see where there's some odd drop-offs. That's a good place to start. Do you have any other actionable tips for sales leaders listening who want to better understand their buyer's journey and start to amend it? I think that that, you know, again, there's a difference between the long-term and the short-term, right? What I just gave you is how do I fix systemic problems on my team? And the really interesting part about that average age and stage is it looks so different from person to person. Because guess what, Devin, you might be really good at this part, but I'm better at this part. So your sales cycle where I need to work with you is on this part of it. But for Jake, I need to work here, you know, or for Rachel, I need, so I think if you look at that data of average age and stage for across your team, you're going to start to pinpoint areas of coaching and development at the macro level. Now, the next step is coaching to the individual on the, the micro level. And that's where I think, you know, again, just to shout out to you all, that's where I think Gong is a really powerful tool that you've got to know how to coach to skills. What I see right now is a lot of leaders are focused on a lot of deal coaching, which is important. But you also have to know, like, look, Devin, I've listened to three calls. Here are the consistent themes around how we bring up competition. And then, again, I can use competitive, you know, competitive insights. Like, I can say, or, um, you know, intelligence to say, hey, competition. So then I can really quickly listen to four or five calls and say, hey, we are doing a great job of doing that now. Um, Let's go on to the next skill we need to work on. So I think that 
as a leader, I've got to be really, really good at coaching you in the micro to skills, but also understanding like, what are your bigger picture patterns that if we change those will also, right. you know, drive longer term results. So I think it's the short term results and using a tool like Gong and then the long term results um, by understanding bigger picture blockages just in your overall sales process. Definitely. No, that's great advice. Is that a good shout out? That's great. I mean, I'll take, good... I'll, I'll take a shout out. Any day of the week. <laughs> well, th this was honestly uh, a fantastic interview. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your journey. That's right, man. Yeah. I'm a big fan of what you've been up to and how, you know, you're working on your brand as well too. So I'm all about it. Thank you very much. Hey everyone. It's time for the micro action. Every week we bring you something to think about or an action you can put into play today. Jake had a great tip for how to improve your buyer's journey, and it's this. Remove the friction and move buyers through your process faster. But how? Jake suggests that you start by looking at the average time in stage for each stage of your sales process. To do this, you'll need to collect data and learn what your average duration in each stage is. Where is the sales process stale and taking a long time versus where is it accelerating quickly? Now you know where to focus. Layer two is comparing your top performers to your lower performers. This comparison will give you realistic targets for improvement. Let's say your best reps are getting from discovery to demo in four days time, but for others, it's looking more like 12 days. There's your proof. It is possible to shorten it for those lower performing reps because others are doing it. Of course, the tricky part is figuring out why that is. Jake's advice, keep it simple. Investigate those stages and observe what can be removed and simplified. Top reps know this and keep the buying journey quick and easy as possible. And making the buyer's journey faster is good for everyone. They'll get a solution more quickly and you'll have time to focus on other deals and keep running towards quota. It's a great suggestion from Jake and one that I know our team looks at regularly. I strongly recommend you do the same. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.